Getting to the gospel is often a painful journey. The desire to do it your way often overpowers his way, even though we know that he is present, that he is powerful, and that he is wise. This stubbornness highlights our depravity. Our thinking ignores the reality of him. And our hearts become dark as we move further and further away from him. We act foolishly, thinking we're acting wise. We pursue what we want at the expense of what he wants for us. Oftentimes to our own detriment. Yet God in his mercy and love, has a way to warn us and ultimately restore us. That is found in this passage that we'll be looking at this morning. And that's why it is so important. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. If you do not have a Bible, there is one in the back of the pew. The book of Romans is in the New Testament, six books in, or you just look in the table of contents to find your way there. Or if you have a Bible app on your phone or iPad or whatever you're using, just punch that in. And as you get there, let us pray. Father, as we come to you to continue to worship you through learning about you, Lord, I would pray that you would be with us, that your spirit would be heavy in this place, that it would begin to penetrate our hearts and minds in such a way that it would lead us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, give us a few aha moments this morning and let us walk out of here with our shoulders a little more upright with a smile on our face because we know we have been touched by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God's wrath warns us of impending calamity and is designed to restore us back to him. So heed his warning and allow it to prompt us to return to him. I'll read the first few verses of uh, this passage in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. These first few verses are the warning that God gives us. His wrath is revealed for th- because, first, man does not do the right thing over and over and over, even they know it's not the right thing. Man just simply doesn't do it. Have you ever been in that situation when you know you're not supposed to do something, but you do it anyway? And then that temptation or that situation comes up again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you think to yourself, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? I know what I am doing is wrong, but I can't help myself. Paul explains this later in Romans in beautiful detail in chapter 7. And his conclusion is that God needs to come to him with mercy. And he needs to hide his life in Jesus because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason why we keep doing the wrong thing even though we know that we're not supposed to do it is the same reason why Adam and Eve ate the apple. Same reason why Cain killed his brother. Same reason why David had the affair with Bathsheba. Same reason why Paul persecuted the Jews. Because there's something inside of us known as sin that is extremely difficult to get out of us. And when temptation comes our way, oftentimes we get sucked into that and we, uh, before we know it, We've made yet another mistake. God's wrath is revealed to us because secondly, God has made it unmistakably clear to man of his awesome power and his divine nature, yet man ignores him. This was clear in the passage in verses 19 and 20. It says, God has made it plain because he's revealed the world to them since creation. If you just look around and just think for just a moment, almost like philosophically, if you were to go in the countryside at night and look at the stars and the billions and billions and billions of stars out there and think, gosh, where did those come from? Who created that? Well, of course, we know that God did. He spoke those into an existence. If we just look around the world itself, if we look at the Camelback Mountain and Paestua Peak and the Rocky Mountains and the rivers and the oceans and the life that's underneath the ocean, life that is uh, there that is uh, close to five miles deep, completely pitch black, and yet life exists at those depths. Who created all of that? Was that just a bunch of cells getting together in a random way? No, God has made it plain, clearly seen that He exists. That through His power 
in his divine nature, he created everything. So people are without an excuse. His wrath is part of his will. He decrees it. It exerts justice. And ironically, it's good and it's patient. There's a few passages in the Old Testament that speak of God being slow of anger, that he is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is abundant in his love and steadfast in it. And he is faithful, that he forgives sin, and that he is slow to anger. So when we speak about God's wrath, which is his justifiable anger, and some people have a hard concept of God being angry. Well, wait a second. God is love. He can't be angry. Yes, he can. In the same way that we are. If we were to come home from church today and to find our front door wide open and half our stuff taken we would be justifiably angry. That's not right. That's not supposed to happen. If we have little kids and we tell our little four and five-year-olds, do not go in the backyard until I get out there because we have a pool back there. And you go to the bathroom and those little rascals get outside in the backyard and you walk out there, you're going to be justifiably angry. Why? Because you love your kids and you do not want to see them injured. You don't want to see them in the pool. God is the same way. He is our parent. He is our father. And his love for us is deeper than we can ever think or imagine. And so when we do knuckle-headed things... And do them over and 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 over. He says, all right. I am now justifiably angry. And this is what's going to happen. In much the same way that we as parents would do the same thing with our children. Is that not true? When our children are young, are we not patient with them? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I tell you, stop it, right? I mean, at some point, our patience is exhausted. And we have to discipline our children so they get it, so they won't do it again. Well, God's the same way. And he, he uses his justifiable anger to discipline us in much the same way that we discipline our kids. God's wrath is revealed because, third, man does not honor or thank God for anything that God has done. They act as if he's not present and that he doesn't exist. I don't know where to go with that. If I think in terms of, gosh, if, if I can put my head around possibly being God for a moment, 
And I think, okay, I've provided man a place to live that is unique among the universe. There's nothing else out there like the earth. It rotates at a perfect axis of 23 degrees so that it gets the four seasons, so that the earth is continually nourished. The sun is just far enough away to warm the earth, but not far enough away to make it a frozen piece of rock. I've given them water. I've given them food. I've given them companionship, husbands and wives and kids. I've given them everything. And then when they cry out to me, I provide them again with material things or spiritual comfort. I sustain them. I provide miracles for them from time to time. I'm with them in their darkest hour. Whenever they call on me, I answer. May not answer in the way that they want, but I do answer. I've given everything for them, even my son, my only son. I allowed to be sacrificed so that they could be with me forever. And yet they go on their way. They ignore me. They don't think that I'm present. Some of them don't even believe I exist. There's no thanks. There's no honoring. And this goes on for Year after year after year after year after year. We see a little bit of this in the Old Testament in the way that God would treat the, the Jewish nation from time to time when they would forego thanking and honoring him and go on their own way. He finally got fed up and he put him into a second exile into, into Babylonia. If you want to remain close to God and remain to have him have your to have him favor and bless you stay humble recognize who he is thank him and honor him because of the love that he has shown you you will reflect back to him you see folks who uh, do not honor or thank God. They ignore the moral standards that he established, the religious realities, the truths that are plain to see because their minds are suppressing the truth. When we read this back at, in verse 18, he says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So people know, everyone knows the truth deep down inside. Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says God has put eternity in our hearts. Not quite sure how to unpack that. But I do know that every person has a longing to do something greater than themselves. They're searching for purpose and significance in life. Many of them are, are, are searching for something that is greater than themselves but they don't know what that might be. And some just flat out know what it is and say, I'm not doing it anyway. I'm going to suppress the truth. 
Secondly, when they do not honor their lives, um, they live their lives uh, to idols that will never satisfy their desires. Rather, those idols will enslave them and cause them to pursue those idols above everything else. When we look down here in verse 23, they say, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of their immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. Well, back then, they had these little idols, these little figurines, right? Um, whether it was a sun god or whether it was a rain god or fertility god or whatever it was, it was represented by an animal, by a creepy thing, or by a man like Zeus, Right? And they would have these things in people's houses. Well, today, we may not necessarily have that here in America so much. But we do have idols. We do pursue things above all else. Don't some people pursue money above everything else? They pursue power. They pursue status. They pursue acceptance. And... The interesting thing is, is the more you pursue those things, say you want to, um, say you want to make a million dollars and that's your goal, and you make your million, and you're like, okay, that was cool. Now I want to make two million. Oh, I made two million. Oh, that was cool. Now I want to make five million. Now I want to make whatever. You see, there's a fallacy of more. The more that I get something, the more I'll be satisfied. No just the more the drive you have to get to the next level. I have a friend of mine who knows Reggie Jackson, the baseball player, really, really well. And they were traveling around New York City one day in Manhattan, and they were having this discussion about wealth. And Reggie Jackson said to my friend, I know a lot of billionaires in this town. A lot. And you know what? You know who the most miserable people are? The billionaires. You would not believe how many times they've been divorced. You would not believe how many affairs they have. You would not believe how many of their kids are in rehab or are drifting in life because they have no purpose. And my friend said, well, that's really interesting. Why do you think that is? He said, because money's their scorecard. It's above all else. And they have to win. So they pursue it at the expense of everything else in their life. That, my friends, is called like an addiction, right? We find that in our lives as well, and in the lives of our friends. This is the reason why God's, one of the reasons why God's wrath is revealed to us. Now, the calamity of it, what's the result? If he reveals that to us, there are, the scripture here gives us three results. I'll read the rest of the passage from 24 to 32. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for, wi- for their women exchanged natural relations for those who were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. I'm not sure he skipped one. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only did they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. As a result, God gives us up to these three things. One, the lust of our hearts that lead us to moral impurity and supreme selfishness. Two, as a result, God gives us up to dishonorable passions that lead to sexual immorality. Three, as a result, God gives us up to a worthless and disreputable mind which pursues unrighteousness and heartily endorses others to do the same. I find it interesting here that when we exhaust God's patience, he just says, go for it. Go on your own way. Whatever is the desire of your heart, go fill it. Have a ball. And what we see here is that you may have a ball for a bit, but you're going to be in a world of hurt after a while. And the aim of God's wrath is that, that is, this is his instrument used to bring us back to him. Remember the story of the prodigal son? For those who may not know, there's a, a, a boy who, uh, there's two brothers, and the younger brother wanted to um, leave the family. Dad was very wealthy. He wanted his inheritance today, didn't want to wait for him to die. So his father said, okay, I'll give you the inheritance. Gave him half the money. He says, go. And boy, did he want to go. He partied and partied and partied and partied. Blew through all of the money. Had the time of his life. Consequence was that he had no place to go because he was foolish with his money. And he was partying, and he partied, and he was reckless. He ended up eating with the pigs, eating the same food as the pigs. Nobody would take him in. And it finally dawned on him, hmm, I might be living a life that's not right. I'm tired of eating the same slop that the pigs eat. I'm tired of being dirty. I'm tired of wearing the same clothes. I'm tired of being broke, isolated, and alone. And so he walks back to his home. 
And he's thinking all along the way, how am I going to apologize to my father who gave me all of this money and I blew it? And he rounds the corner and there is his father who sees him from a distance. And he's looking all shady, smelly, unshaven. His father runs to his son and grabs him and welcomes him back into the family. In fact, he's so thrilled that his son came back, he threw him a party, which caused a lot of problem with the older brother because the older brother did everything right all the time and his dad didn't throw his older brother a party. See, that is a small picture of living under discipline. And then when we realize, wait a second, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. There's got to be a better way. I can't believe I've done all these stupid things and blown through all this money and fill in the rest of the blank. So I'm going to return. I'm coming home. And you think as you're kicking all the excuses and how you're going to apologize and try to rationalize your behavior and all of that. And all you have is God sprinting to you. Saying, welcome home. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to throw you a party. You're like, wait, what? Why would you do that for me? Look what I just did. He says, I know. That's why I'm throwing you a party. Because you have decided to come back. And I'm going to restore you. You've asked for forgiveness. And when you ask for forgiveness, guess what? I don't remember it anymore. We're good. You see, God uses wrath as his instrument to bring us back to him. And when we cry out in the depth of our experience because we have gone away from God, he invites us back in and he runs to us. And the gospel is the means of bringing us back for it is the power of salvation and through it the righteousness of God is revealed, which is what we learned last week. So, my friends, this passage paints a vivid picture of what life looks like with God's wrath upon us. To prevent it, do three things. One, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Many people think that the gospel is just for salvation. Oh, I, I did that and I'm saved. But the, uh, the gospel is just as important for sanctification as well. It's just as important after you trust Christ as it is before you trust Christ. After you trust Christ, you can't say, okay, well, I'm just going to do it myself now. I'm saved, I'm in the club, and so now I'm going to try to live out a righteous life without the power of Christ within me. If you could do that, then you wouldn't need the gospel in the first place. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. And it goes something like this. Lord, I know I've blown it. 
You know, I know I'm going to blow it today several times. I know that I'm going to lie to somebody. I know that I'm going to do somebody wrong or I'm going to do something wrong. And it's going to be out of an innocent heart. It's not going to be something that's going to be malicious. But nonetheless, I know that I'm going to do something that's going to be displeasing to you. So, Lord, that's why I'm going to rely on the cross. Because Jesus has forgiven me that sin. And when I confess it, it's done. You're not going to remember that anymore. You're going to see me white as snow again. And I'm going to rely upon you and your spirit to be that break that's going to tap a few times before I get through the intersection at 50 miles an hour and crash once again. It's by the power of your resurrection that that sin has been defeated. And it's by the power of the resurrection that I can look at temptation in the face and say, no, go away. That's the gospel. Oh, one other thing. Christ is seated in the heavenlies. He is present with us. When he hears our prayer and our cry, he intercedes on our behalf. I wonder what that looks like. He's sitting at the right hand of God in our prayers. Saul, however many billion prayers are going up all simultaneously, he's at the right hand of God. I picture him almost being like a catcher in baseball. Right? And he's interceding in our behalf and translating all of those prayers right into his father's ear. And he's saying, she is mine. He is mine. Over there, she is mine too. He is mine. They are all mine. And yes, I will honor those prayers. Secondly, stay close to God by staying in touch with Him on a consistent basis through prayer and study. So, so critical. I cannot overemphasize to pray continuously. And that doesn't mean that you forego the rest of your day and all of your activities. But as you're driving down the road, could you not say just a short little prayer? As you're walking through the mall somewhere, could you not just say, hey God, just checking in. Watch, continue to watch over me today. As you drop your kids off from school, could you say a little prayer? As you walk into your work at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, could you just say, hey, I need you to be with me today. I need your power. I need your wisdom. Simple, short, little prayer. Stay in touch with him. And then, of course, through study. Third, listen to God's spirit. It's implanted inside of our hearts. Those who have trusted Christ, it's right here. As I mentioned, it's almost like that brake check, right? Taps the brakes a little bit as you're, before you go through that intersection, just so you're alert and you know what's going on. He's like, hey, slow down. You're about to hit something. Well, don't continue to accelerate. Say, no, I'm not. I'll dodge him. Right? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Follow his lead. And here's what will happen when you listen to his spirit. 
he will remind you that you have mastery over that temptation. Way back in Genesis 4, God is telling Cain that sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. Now, we can't rule over it in our own power, but we can rule over it in His power. And His power is in us. And it reminds us, hey, I'm about to do something stupid. Uh, No. Nope. Nope. Go away. I'm not doing that. Go away, little man. Go away, little devil. I'm not. I don't want to play your game right now. As a group, lastly, I'm talking collectively as a church body, as a congregation, as an assembly of people of God. I want want us to imagine for a moment if we really lived this way on a consistent basis. How radical would that look to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your friend? How radical would it look if a person who did not know God would come into a place like this and receive love that they have never received before? Grace, mercy, joy. That they would notice and say, there's something different about you guys. And they begin to hear our stories of people battling cancer and having joy as they do it. People who are going through tremendous financial hardship and yet they say, yeah, I'm relying on God and God has always sustained me. He's always come through me, uh, through for me. I don't know how it's going to happen this time, but I know it's going to happen because it's happened every time in the past. And they witness it coming true and they're like, wow, there's got to be something there. Wow, look at these people. They are depending upon the Lord in ways makes it kind of cool. I want what they have because what I have tried doesn't work. I've tried to satisfy myself with all the money in the world. I've tried to satisfy myself with all the power, all the status. I've tried to satisfy myself with being important. And I come up empty every time. But these people, they've got something else going on. These people aren't malicious. They're not gossips. They're not evil. They're not haters of God. They're not haughty or boastful. They're not foolish. They're not faithless. They're not heartless. They're not ruthless. I want to be like them. You see, that's the power of us. And I don't want us to miss that. Because a group this size can truly transform a neighborhood. By getting to know people and loving on them as you love yourself. And showing them that there is a different way. If there's nothing else that we get today, I want us to understand that the wrath of God is his justifiable anger and it is an instrument that he uses to bring us back to him. In the same way, a good father 
uses discipline to bring their children back into a family. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, we are so grateful for your word and the way that it guides us and the way that it instructs us, the way that it warns us, the way that it comforts us. As we go from today, would you please imprint your word upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.